1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? We want guns! Now, the final chapter in the incredible ape saga. There it is, our wars. This is the hell my forefathers used to speak about. This background radiation alone will give us 300 rentgens an hour. The battlefield, a dead city 12 years after the ultimate bomb has been dropped. The prize, the right to inherit what's left of the Earth. The contestants, ape against man. The most unbelievable showdown ever filmed. As the mutants, strange transformed men who live underground like moles, battle the apes to decide who will be master and who will be slain. They're getting away. Kill them. We who survive create a new race. In the aftermath of his victory, the surface of the world was ravaged by the vilest war in human history. Climaxing the epic series which made motion picture history, comes the last, the most spectacular of all the ape adventures. Out of the forbidden city they roared to settle once and for all who had the right to rule the planet, ape or man.
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spitaro, and I am here with my good buddy, Sean Whalen. It's a pleasure to be here, as always. And it's always a pleasure to have you here, metaphorically speaking. Uh, and today we are joined by two-thirds of what has become our Planet of the Apes panel, uh, Mr. Zaki Hassan Hi. and Mr. Rich Handley. Hello. How are you guys doing? Very good, Very thanks. Very well, thank you. Thank you for making the time, as always, to come aboard. And you know I love talking Planet of the Apes. So we're going to have to, as we were talking before we started to record this, we're going to have to find excuses to talk about stuff until the latest uh, movie comes out. But in the meanwhile, we are hitting the final Planet of the Apes movie that uh, that we have not yet discussed on uh, this particular program, because we've already done the first four of the originals uh, before I had uh, met up with you guys to create this panel. I had done the uh, 2000 reboot and Zaki and I and then Rich joined in, did the uh, you know Rise, Dawn and uh, War episodes so we've been through just about all of the cinematic versions uh sean has joined this show after all of that happened so i'm going to give you the floor first just to give your background for planet of the apes assuming you have one well i do and it's, and it's maybe a unique one for the panel so you know i grew up in i was born in 71 grew up in the 70s i knew of the planet of the apes from i think the tv show you know as far as i was familiar with the concept of it Never had watched the movies or anything. Late 90s, I flew out to California to visit one of my buddies. He was teaching at the time, and I was off. So it was the middle of the work week for him. I flew in late. I wanted to watch a movie. You know, it's kind of like I'd just gotten in. I, I felt like doing something. He had the Planet of the Apes series. So that happened to be sitting there, and I'm like, I've never seen those. I watched the first one. I marathoned through all five, like, in the course of that trip so i got totally drawn into the world was very you know intrigued by everything but my exposure to it was really the late 90s and um i I grew to really enjoy it i i'm going to be interested to talk about this film in particular because this is the first time i've seen this one in a while and uh i it's going to be fun i think to kind of just play i don't want to reveal my hand as far as where i'm at on this film yet but it's going to be an interesting one to talk about but that's been my exposure to it i've i saw the films i saw the reboots you know the new ones as well but um i will say that first watching says a lot about a film series that i was on a vacation and, and i just kept wanting to go back to it and mm. saw the whole thing i saw the whole series on one trip so that, that does make you unique in this panel because we all in three different formats or three different forms kind of grew up with Planet of the Apes, whereas you were, uh, you know, you were in your in adulthood before you were exposed to it. So that that is definitely different. Um, as I've mentioned before, I've seen I saw every Planet of the Apes movie cinematically uh, and the original five I saw multiple times in the theaters, including when they had a marathon of all five in the same day. Uh, which is kind of insane when you think about it. But then you hear about these people who go to the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, marathons. So I guess there's levels of insanity. Uh, You know, this one is much, much maligned uh, because the budget on it was, I think, $20, a pack of gum and a rubber band. Uh, But I... What's that? Sorry? Half a rubber band. Half a rubber band. Uh, I 
totally accept the criticism of the budget, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that somewhat. Uh, but I think this movie hits on a lot of things. I don't think they skimped at all when it came to writing this movie. And I don't think they skimped at all in the acting in this movie. I think both of those, I'm going to come right out and say, I think they're both really solid. Um, but, you know, I, I, we'll, we'll get into some details on that. For what it's worth, I'm going to just throw out, uh, years ago, Two True Freaks did a Planet of the Apes month. On Back to the Bins, we did each week, we went on to a different Planet of the Apes comic book series. Scott and Chris Honeywell uh, did uh, commentaries on the first four movies, but didn't care for this one. So and Andy Leyland and I did a commentary on this movie to save them from having to do it. And that one, if anybody is interested in, I re-released it as an Is It Yours episode. It's episode number 28. So if anybody wants to hear the commentary on this one, uh, they're more than welcome to listen to that and it's, it's available to them. Uh, I've already kind of played my hand a little bit to say that despite the budget, I really like this movie. Uh, but why don't we get first impressions from everybody going around the around the horn here? So I'm going to throw it to Zachy first. Um, I what, what I often say is that this is my least favorite of the five, but I like all five. So. You know, it's like if I had to pick which one to watch, this probably, you know, I, I, I always it's not like I skip it when I do my rewatch, but I think the budgetary restrictions definitely kick in. But the truth of it is that that uh, the older I get, the more I appreciate it. And, you know, I uh, I remember being younger and reading the um, the details of, of what Paul Dane had originally written for this for the 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 synopsis or the, the treatment for this which is much darker and it ended at a much grimmer place and i remember being younger and i would say not like a little kid but like in my 20s and be like oh you know i wish it was that you know but when i watch it now uh, you know 20 years past that i'm like no i like this i like that they chose something a little gentler and a little more hopeful as a way to close out this cycle and that's something uh I maybe just having become a parent, I, I, and watching these movies with my kids, I like how they appreciate that, how they're, it's, it's left ambiguous as opposed to, yeah, everything sucks and everything will continue to suck. And that's something I, I appreciate more now. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that my first exposure to A Battle for the Planet of the Apes was not via the film. It was through the novelization by David Gerald, which I got, uh, in Saudi Arabia, they had, you know, one of those book swaps. And so the, I, I had gotten that. And so that uh, I read that I just devoured that book. And I remember watching the film and there were there were parts of the book that I wished desperately were in the movie where um, you have um, McDonald and teacher and doctor and they have their their moments together, which are really nice character moments that unfortunately didn't make it into the movie. But, yeah, you know, I like it. Uh, I, uh, oh, it. It has its problems, which I'm sure we'll get into. But but uh, on balance, I find it. Uh, very poignant and i think the final image is is you know i find it uh, kind of heartbreaking to be honest uh, rich what do you say um well uh, in, in previous podcasts I, i've joked around that that um this movie uh had the basically the biggest the biggest mistake they made that's a bad way to put it the the, the biggest disappointment was that after um after conquest they they followed up this 
epic film with a movie in which the battle for the planet of the apes is actually a couple dozen apes with tree houses versus a you know a school bus and a motorcycle um but mostly i'm joking whenever i say that and the reason is i agree fully with zaki this is a good movie um is it on the same level as conquest in many ways no but in many in many ways i adore it as far as when i first my first impression of it would have actually been when I was very young. I grew up um, in, in upstate New York and watched the 430 movie, which was a film showcase that had theme weeks. And the funny thing about this movie is that they did Planet of the Apes week a couple times a year, and but the, the first movie was always split to Monday and Tuesday. And so for a while, I didn't know battle existed. I, I grew up... <laughs> Seeing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, oh, okay. Conquest. That's the last movie. <laughs> because <laughs> what they used to do was sci-fi week at a different point in the year. And that included battle. And I guess that that was, that was Channel 7's way of saying we hate this movie. I, I'm not sure. Um, for whatever reason, they, they deemed it. They, they deemed it not uh, as unnecessary for Planet of the Apes week, which is a very strange decision, but they did. And uh, so when I finally saw it, it was revelatory because, oh, my God, more apes. Therefore, it burned itself in my head early on as a great thing because I had another ape movie, whereas everyone else, I think, knew there were five. <laughs> I was a kid. It was the 70s and the, in the early 80s, and there was no Internet. So... From that point on, um, I, I was just I was, I was hooked on all five of them, and I, I would I started getting involved in fan fandom, learning meeting other fans, learning that this movie was not well regarded, and I never understood it. Yeah, it has a smaller budget, but it has some stellar acting. It it has the amazing bookend scenes with the lawgiver, and it has the stuff with the mutants, which is fantastic. And I didn't realize how fantastic, of course, because none of us had seen the extra scenes yet. So it was huh. even more fantastic once we got those. Um, Why they cut those out, I have no clue. Huh. Yeah, no I know. Clue. It's the best stuff in the film. Uh, but, you know, it, it's it's um, in many ways, I think that it is worthy of the series. And, and, and despite it being a dozen apes versus a school bus and a motorcycle i'm okay with it because even though it probably would more accurately be called battle for the village of the apes it doesn't really matter to me i think it is a it is a great capper you know it it, it didn't need to be huge for the same reason that i'm a huge proponent of alien 3 after aliens i don't care that it was a smaller scale I think the story that it was being told didn't need this massive scale. We we weren't we weren't yet in the modern day films where the battle was going to be massive. Um, it was a specific story being told, and I think it served it well. See, I, I think uh, if they had made it on a larger scale, it would have been at the expense of some of the character moments, which are, in my opinion, the strength of the movie. Um, yep. So, so I think making it on a larger scale probably would have been a bad decision as far as the quality of the film. Uh, you know, the spectacle would have been better, but the quality probably would not have been as good. So, I'm well, a little more money on the eight masks might have been a good, <laughs> might have been a good thing. Especially, and I, and I, I'm 
not given Sean a chance to give his thoughts yet, but I'm going to throw it in there before I forget to mention it. You know, the, the iconic scene in the movie, and I'm sure you guys have to know this, or at least Rich certainly does. I, I, I you know, it, when, when he, when, you know, when he does the now fight like apes and his mouthpiece actually falls off and they blur the screen so that you won't see it. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, it shows you what the budget was that they couldn't even refilm that scene after his prosthetic, uh, you know, mouth fell off. Yeah. So there also there are apes in the background, and you could tell they wouldn't be able to do that anyway because they're they're not movable. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, going back to like our our initial thoughts, what do you say, Sean? So I love this series as a whole, and I mean, I've, over my shoulder is my DVD set, you know, which is contained inside uh, my little. Oh, I see the ape head. Yeah. yeah. So I I love the series. This my memory of this one walking into it was kind of like this was the good one, you know, meaning it was, you know, I, it's I'm it's more Planet of the Apes. So that that is a great thing. But I was always kind of like, eh, this is this one I remember being is one that I just enjoyed. Not a bad movie, just don't have these fond memories of it. So I walked in kind of expecting that and was holding on to that for, you know, the initial part of my first viewing back at it again, preparing for this. And then partway through, it's, there were moments of greatness in this one where it was doing some things that I thought were really cool. I really appreciated a lot of the – I feel like this movie is really dependent on the other films. That's not a knock or a criticism. It's more of the fact it's the fifth movie. It's it's meant to build off of what has come before because the whole – thing that it plays with as far as can you really change the future which is a which is i think a really critical theme in this whole thing you know are we really stuck with this destiny or can we make different choices um which is where we've got um some some of our characters getting philosophical in this kind of piece you know they knowing what's coming i really started to think that was a very smart part of this film where you know, they're looking at their own nature and, and what are are they ultimately predestined to create this pathway that they kind of escaped from um, in kind of creating the society. And I really found myself being drawn into and enjoying that aspect of this film. It's um, this was probably my most unique viewing of it in the sense that just certain things clicked for me that didn't before. And I'll share more as we kind of talk about specific sequences we're in. But um, I was really surprised on this one at um, how much I enjoyed it this time around. Not that I didn't before. I, like I said, I marathoned through it, and I certainly wasn't like punished into like doing that. Um, I've watched the all the whole series, you know, multiple times since then. This time around, just had some a different flavor for me. Well, I think what you said is true. Is that you know it has the science fiction issue in it of you know, can you change the future or are you fated to do whatever? And I think that's the ambiguity at the end. And usually I am not a fan of ambiguity when they say, well, you have to decide for yourself what happened. I don't like that. I want them to have a message that they're sending. But in this one, that final tier uh, is always subject to interpretation. Does that mean uh, it's a tier of sadness because they're destined to have live out the future as we know it from the first movie or is it a tear of joy that they finally made the effective change of the timeline so you know that's that's a big science fiction thing to it but this like i think the well-written planet of the apes movies has a lot of sociological 
issues to it as well. There's there's questions, you know, there's there's parallels to slavery, and there's uh, not only the parallels to slavery, but there's Caesar being the benevolent slave owner. You know, not even that, you know, he's an evil slave owner, he's a benevolent slave owner, but he's a slave owner just the same. So there's that issue, which is huge. Then there's also the, you know, the war and peace questions in there. Uh, you know, General Aldo's way of, of looking at things compared to Caesar's way of looking at things compared to Culp's way of looking at things and, and how they all play out. And that's where I think one of the scenes that's missing uh, kind of hurts it because you know, they, they do, I, I always wonder, why don't they send out a patrol to see what the apes are doing before they attack, you know, blindly, but they did send out a patrol and that's in a deleted scene that, that we, you know, we get that and, and that he, you know, they, they, he gets reported back that the apes are in a war council getting ready to attack us. So, you know, Cope's attack is really meant to be a preemptive strike, not so much a, uh, an act of aggression on his own. So there's a lot of questions about that. Then there's the question of when Caesar's ready to let them go, would they just have gone back and set off the bomb? And, you know, would that have been a mistake? So did Aldo actually prevent that from happening? Uh, you know, who knows? Then there's, you know, then there's also the ape must not kill ape. And there's so much. There. I think there's a lot of layers to this movie that people ignore. I agree. I think that's where it gets smart. Um, this one, like I said, my my feeling this time around was that, boy, this one's a lot smarter than I remember it being. Um, I felt like I was being harded on it more of my... It's hard when you start comparing it to... I think the other movies are excellent. So when you, know, you, you look at this one, I think, right, there's some production values of this one that are different than the other ones. And I think it's sometimes easy to get caught up in that. I'll at least say it for myself. It was easy for me to get caught up in that and not give this movie credit for the story that was being told. Whereas I feel this time around, I think I more was I think I was much more focused on the story this time around than I have been before. You know, um, I think you and I have talked about this in the past, Paul, that when um when Jim Beard and I did Tales in the Forbidden Zone before anybody had a chance to pick stories, I I. Um, told Jim I'm, I'm writing a sequel to Battle and that was m what my story was about the aftermath of this movie and the reason is that I've always felt this film um, was such a springboard to more stories and the fact that we didn't get a sixth one uh, was a crime you know like I just felt like there should have been more and so I wanted to tell the story of what happens next and it, it, I think more than the other movies, this one to me fascinated me as as, uh, as leaving me wanting to know more. And one could say that maybe that that was a sign something was lacking, but I don't see it that way at all. I see that it it uh, it, it sorry my phone is ringing and I have it hidden, but it's not helping. But um, uh, it, it it inspired my imagination more than something film too. But I think partly because because it's open ended. You know, it leaves me wondering which way it went. But I kind of like the idea that this is the this is the setup for battle. This is the beginning of the Mendez dynasty, and that's the end of the Mendez dynasty. And there's so much that happens over the course of 2,000 years, and it all directly tied to how battle ends. 
And for what it's worth, since Rich will touch on the fact that he wrote a story, but won't give everybody details, uh, which I will I will uh, attribute to modesty. Uh, in Tales of the Forbidden Zone, uh, Rich's story is called The King is Dead, Long Live the King. And uh, it was about 25 pages or so, so it's a nice short story. Uh, and uh, I have it right here. Thank you. I hope that put money directly in your pocket. And I hope it wasn't like a nickel. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's funny because I always took the attitude with this that they wrote that ending with the lawgiver or the bookends with the lawgiver for the sake of telling the the produ- you know, the, the producers, that's it, we're not doing anymore. But I do think they, they you know, I, I think a good writer can always find a little opening to 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 bring something further. So uh yeah, I I, I think they, they purposely didn't want to do any more after this. Cause I mean, after Beneath the Planet Apes, they blew up the world and they still had to do a sequel. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's I remember as a kid when all five movies were out, this was not renowned as the worst one of the five. That was uh, yeah, for for whatever reason, Beneath was the the most reviled by at least by the adults. And I never. I was still a kid. I'm sorry. I never got that at all. It's my favorite sequel, so I never understood that. Well, I I don't understand it because I think it's the most clever. Mm-hmm. The creation of the mutants, I think, is just just such a, such a a fertile ground to to be played with. Oh yeah. Uh, and and such you know it just leaves so much to the imagination that that you could do with it uh and and try and figure out and then just you know the uh the aspect of the the you know the satire of having them worship the bomb and all of that and then kind of again another deleted scene bringing us full circle on that in this movie do you think that the fact that beneath back in the day um was the one that tended to be singled out as the worst one do you think that might be partly responsible for the uh, for the connections to beneath having been those scenes that were cut that's very possible i'm sorry did i cut somebody off there? no I, I i was really more positively sighing towards the when when he was saying that because i i couldn't agree more that like maybe that's the reason why it's, it's what i was saying earlier as far as i what i found this time it's I don't mean it as a criticism. I think this movie, for me, my, my enjoyment of it, really required the other movies. And Beneath is one of them. You know, we you were referencing before about the mutants and the development of the mutants. It's in this one, because they've been developed, because I saw them in that, I, I have a different attachment and interest in their continuing story in this. Um, I, I feel like there's so many characters in this and so many ideas in this that really are dependent on the other films. And um, that's not a bad thing. It's a series of films. Yeah. So I should feel like, you know, there's a connection to them. Um, this one, it, it's if someone were to ask me, Planet of the Apes, where should I start? I certainly would not say this one, but that's not a criticism. It's I would, you know, start at the beginning and work your way through, um, which I know sounds logical. But there's other movies where you can say you don't have to have seen what's come before. There's a self-contained story there. I don't feel this is that movie. And it's it's not for negative reasons. It's more of I think the value comes from having some of the lore 
the background knowledge of this one to really enjoy it and kind of play around with some of the pieces that they threw in story-wise. I think for me as a, as a viewer this time around, I think I connected with it more because I've watched the other movies so many times before that I felt like I walked in this time maybe with a different connection to the background knowledge of this one, and it gave me kind of a different take on it. But uh, Beneath, yeah, absolutely. Beneath was a big factor in my enjoyment of this one. One of the things I've always enjoyed about this is Virgil, who I think might be my single favorite ape character. Oh, he's great. Yeah, he he really (laughs) is. And and, uh, I, I enjoy the fact that he's always the smartest man in the room. Yes. Uh, and that he's not afraid to tell you that he's the smartest man in the room. <laughs> and the looks on everyone else's faces, it, it just sells it. Because I think we all know somebody like Virgil. And, 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 Although his, but his theories like about time travel don't make sense. <laughs> A lot of the theories in these films don't make sense. But, <laughs> yeah. You know, not- I mean, he's also, I mean, he's also among the first generation of orangutans that speak. So, Yeah. Now, how much time – I remember we had this discussion when I did uh, the commentary on the movie, and I'm curious, you know, as as somebody who uh, did timeline of the Planet of the Apes, how much time do you believe passed between the end of Conquest and the beginning of this movie? The um, the film is a little inconsistent on this one, and I, I, I've always assumed it could be due to script changes or just to the fact that Paul Dane couldn't pull out a copy of the movie and watch it again, even though – amusingly he had written the other ones but um but it, it given some dialogue it seems to be a decade others it's 27 years but that, that, that you know the mandemus has been uh um yeah, right. he's been living in the armory 27 years yeah, um, it all depends when i when i was writing timeline i i had to battle that question excuse me you know, battle uh, unintentional there but i had to uh, battle that question because um, I had to reconcile those lines. The fact that that you know, I forget it's it. I forget the line, but it was it been ten years since the war, so I forget what the line was now. Um, and uh, so, but I think I think the one that has to be taken um, most as an example of of time of how much time has passed is Mandemus, because if he's been in charge of the armory for twenty seven years, it has to be twenty seven years. Like, uh, yeah. so I assume that in the interim of that twenty seven year period. There was a there was a war that they're referring to that happened in the interim and that it's not the previous movie. That's how I've always perceived it. Huh. And I think that um I think that there are some comic stories that bear that out too. Hmm. I think you can better acclimate the story to the idea that it's twenty seven years than you can that it's ten. Um because although they haven't created much of a uh you know, a, a village as far as the structures go that they're all living in tree houses. Uh, despite that, they seem to have developed a level of culture that I don't think would exist in just 10 years. Uh, especially Vir- doesn't Virgil say that Mandemus was his teacher? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, you know, th- that means they've had schools for since Virgil was a young right. orangutan. Uh, so, you know, 27 years might even be a little short. Uh I assume chimpanzees have a similar lifespan to us. It's uh, shorter. A quarter? No, no, no. It's it's uh, shorter than ours. Shorter? Yeah. Uh, 
Because meanwhile, uh, Caesar's doesn't. This is this is one of the dilemmas. Caesar doesn't look that much older. I mean, granted, it's makeup, but it's not like moisturizer. It's not exactly, yeah. Uh, (laughs) But it's uh, it's not like he's. It's not like he was an infant in the previous movie, and or an old man now. So it's um, yeah, they're not consistent on this question. Well, you figure if he was maybe twenty-one years old in Conquest. Let's, you know, I, I think that's a, a fairly reasonable age. You know what? Let's even go younger. Let's go 18. Well, he would it would have been 73 to, to 91, so 18. That's right. 18, that's right. So he's 18 years old then. Uh, Cornelius looks to be about a 12-year-old, I would say. Right. So that would bring him to 30. And then if you're going to say, well, it was 27 years, that would put him in his early to mid-40s. He'd be like in Zachy's world. There you go. <laughs> I'll take it. So I took it as longer too because actually a lot of what you were saying, Paul, about culture. Okay, so you've got this new car smell of culture, right? Where everybody's on board with that new culture because it was so different than what they went through beforehand. But not only did they have like this culture's progressed to a certain point, but you also got to the point where now there's certain factions within that culture that are getting ambitious, like Aldo. You know, where that's not something that he initially there was his own rise to become general because, boy, he's not afraid to tell us that it's General Aldo and go on about that over and over again. But now he's seeing places where he can perhaps take advantage of situations to perhaps usurp even Caesar. Um, And that's not something that you're going to do in a fresh culture. Where, you know, Caesar's at his prime. Um, he's this has been around for a while where he can he knows who will start to follow him. They've, he's built his own loyalties there. And those were all pieces that I felt like were richly developed in this. And I really kind of liked that whole intrigue that was going on. Um, it's it, I think the actors did a really good job when we were mentioning some of the limitations as far as budget on this one's, you know, as far as you know, quote unquote being a thing of making me feel like I'm a big fan of 60s and 70s sci-fi, you know, where we, you know, especially television wise, where the budget wasn't a thing. It was up to the acting talent and the story to give me that sense of disbelief. Right. I thought the actors did a phenomenal job of that in this because I was believing they were the characters. Yeah. And, and that's really critical, even with the little tiny things we were talking about, like with Caesar with the blurring out and that kind of thing. Sure, that was a thing. But um, I can quickly dismiss that when they're doing this good of a job at delivering these characters. Yeah, I think Roddy McDowell owned this character by this time. Oh, I think he knew exactly how to act using his body language and using his eyes and just kind of like. A minor shake of his head, things like that to convey what he was thinking, how he was feeling, um, you know, and, and it, it makes sense considering this was his fourth time, even though it was Cornelius for a while, then Caesar, it's still his fourth time pretty much in the same role. Um, so, he, you know, he knew exactly how to do it. I was impressed with how Paul Williams did as Virgil. Because uh, I've never known Paul Williams to be too much of an actor. Uh, but I, I really thought he he did a great job with this. Uh, Claude Akins was extremely threatening as yeah. Aldo and, and very, you know, really played the bully well. 
uh, even you know to the point when when he like starts to get afraid and backs down at the end of the movie. Uh, you know, I, I really think he again he used his body language largely. I don't know. You know, I know Roddy McDowell was a child actor. I don't know everybody else's background to know if they have much of a stage training. But I would think that for a role like this, where you have such heavy facial makeup, that's going to stop you from really expressing yourself too much with your face outside of really using your eyes. Uh, I think body language is a very big thing. And if you were a stage actor, you really know how to use your body language. And I'm going to just divert tangent off that. That's the thing that I always come back to when people criticize William Shatner for overacting is I believe he was a stage trained actor and acted on TV as that. So he would, you know, almost appear hammy to some people, but I think he was doing it, you know, in a classically trained way. Um, and I think that would lend itself to this very well. And I, again, I don't know if these people have that background, but it felt like they did. Well, I, I do know that Claude Aikens uh, went to a th- went to a theatrical school, so it makes sense in his case. And in the case of Paul Williams, I don't know since his primary thing was that he was a songwriter, so I'm not sure there. Yeah, I, again, he surprised me with how how well he acted in this. Uh, I mainly know him as an actor besides this from the episode of The Odd Couple that he played himself on, uh, yeah. and that wasn't really too much of an acting challenge for him. Uh, but, you know, again, I, I think they all did a really good job of conveying the thoughts. I think Culp did a good job. I wonder, you know, the the story that I heard was they wanted Governor Breck back, but the actor wasn't available. So right. then they kind of elevated Culp to the uh, to the leader of the mutants. Uh, and I don't know that it would have been better because Breck was a real over the top emoting guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think Culp seethed more. And I think seething helped his, his portrayal. Well, he, he has one line in particular that I'm just so glad it was glad that it was Culp. And, and I, I, I love Breck, but the line, um, we may be irradiated, but we're still active. It, like, it's the way he delivers it that sells what could have been a corny line with the with, with another actor's uh, performance. Is, is, uh, it's, it's, it's that giggle that he does at the end where he thinks about how what he just said is silly and it's a great moment for an over-the-top villain to giggle at his own joke. Um, and I, I don't know that it would have been as effective with Breck. Well, Breck, and, and we talked about this when we did Conquest, apparently took some inspiration from watching uh, movies of Adolf Hitler and the way he was, the way his body language was when he uh, would give a speech, how over-the-top he was. And, and, that's something I didn't know until I was like reading up to when we were going to talk about it. But then watching it with that in mind, it really did look like that to me. Um, but I, I didn't think this needed that. Yeah. And 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 it's not that he's underplaying the role cult, but he does pull back once in a while. You know, if you read the um, you read the the, the comics adaptation in which Breck appears, it's still good. But it's uh, but on film, I think maybe it's because we've all grown up seeing cult, like the idea of Breck being in it seems odd just because we didn't see it that way. So let's talk about the budget, because I think we'd be kind of doing a disservice to anybody listening if we don't at least address it. Um, you know, their budget was cut with every movie. Uh, this one had a budget reportedly of one point seven million, which 
even by those standards, was not a big budget movie in any way, shape, or form. Uh, it shows in the fact that they did have to scale it down, which we kind of discussed a little bit, and that didn't really bother us because I think, as I said, I think it lent itself to character moments. Uh, it showed somewhat in the makeup that if you if you look closely when you're watching this, especially in high definition, you can see the connections between the prosthetics and the skin on the actors periodically. Yeah. Um, and and it showed in, you know, what they had to create the battle scenes. Uh, and, and the biggest failure, as far as that goes, is there's one tree that gets blown up, I think, five times <laughs> during the course of the battle. There's also the fact that the the fatal fall of Aldo seems to only be, have been about three feet from the ground. <laughs> <laughs> but creative camera work tries to hide that fact and does not quite uh, succeed. Yeah. So, so, you know, for me, the budget is, I, I, you know, the producers may have been onto something because they did save their money on the budget. And as far as I'm concerned, it didn't really hurt the movie to speak of. It did hurt its reputation. But I think if you look at the movie without kind of prejudging it based on the uh, the budget, I don't think it really hurt it that much. You know, my um, a couple of years ago, I, I introduced my friend Tim to the to the franchise. We watched um, all nine movies and and and, and um, both TV shows. It took a while, but we got through it all. And I was really curious about two specific things, what he was going to say about battle and what he was going to say about the cartoon. Um, his reaction to the cartoon was, oh, my God. But his reaction to battle was really positive. And this is a guy who had not grown up um, having seen any of these before. They were all new to him. He always had this preconceived notion that the Planet of the Apes movies were, were kind of silly 1960s sci-fi he didn't realize how profound they were and for his money these movies were never bad um the, the five classic ones i mean like he he loved all of them and battle's budget did not in any way uh affect that he he chuckled at some of it but like he he reckoned he, it did not in any way um uh prevent him from 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 loving the film Now, Zachy, you were saying that you you first uh, what did you first have the comic adaptation of this before you actually saw it? No, the the novelization. The novelization. So yeah, now, having has, read the novelization, uh, it has a picture first. from from the end of Conquest at the end of it, um, which kind of threw me for a loop. I, I did. It has a picture from the wrong movie, but I read that was the first. In, in, in point of, I think I'd seen the cartoon first, but uh, which I said before that that's what sort of made me an ape super fan. But the novel of Battle was the first time that was my first egress into the films. And in the novel, there's there's these tantalizing uh, flashbacks or flash forwards describing the events of the first and second movies. And I remember being like, wow, I, I want to see that. I can't, you know, like, like it was back then, you know what I mean? In the internet age, you can just find everything. Everything's a few clicks away. But like back then, and I, again, I was living in Saudi Arabia at the time. It, you had to, I was like a junior Indiana Jones trying to get a hold of these pieces of the Apes franchise, you know, and just, just kind of put it all together. I didn't end up watching the movie itself till probably uh, the mid, mid 90s. 
so uh, for a while there, I just had the, the novelization to go on. And that's and that's where I'm going is having read the novelization and familiar with the story there. How did you feel about the manner and extent to which they were able to put it on the screen? That's it. Yeah, it, it definitely wasn't something where I, I had built it up in my head into something entirely different. Uh, it I would say for the most part, it lived up. Like I said, like I mentioned earlier, there, there were some some scenes in the novel that did not make it into the film that I missed. And those are some of the, the character scenes. But but it's actually a fairly straightforward, faithful adaptation by Gerald. He didn't you know, and I and I think that says something about oh, the underlying strength of the script that, that Paul Dane and the Quarrington's wrote, you know, it, it, oftentimes you have novelists who, who kind of, they have to like finesse it, you know, they have to like work around the flaws of the actual script. And I think, I think battle, it was made from, from, if you'll permit me a metaphor from uh, the television series, it was made from good seed. I think, uh, you know, while the budget was cut, I think there was an honest effort to really put some quality on the screen, uh, you know, from from the screenwriters to the, uh, you know, to the to the directing, to the acting, to the cinematography. And I, I should mention the cinematography, which is Richard Klein. I really thought this was well filmed for, you know, again, special effects notwithstanding. Uh, I, I, I thought, you know. I, I I really thought there was a, a real effort to to put together a, a really not, a good final product, and I think a lot of it does carry over and show. I think they did the best they possibly could with the budget they had. I think they like the, the scenes that, that come to mind, for example, uh, are when they first arrive um, in the mutant city and they're walking through it, and Culp is watching them on the video and so forth, and. You know, they pass the mutants lying on the side, pretending to be decrepit and so forth. Well, they are decrepit, but pretending to just be lying there. Um, if you step back and look at the set, it really looks like it. Honestly, it's like nothing more than like a large building's basement. There's not like and yet they make very effective use of this so that you do get the feeling you, you buy into it enough that you overlook the fact that it really does not look like what we saw in beneath. It doesn't matter. It still works. Now, this again, Richard Klein was the cinematographer, and I just looked up to see what he had done. And I think the movies he had done before this one probably gave him a good background to to create the you know the appearance uh, of what he was looking for here. Because we have Hang 'Em High, you know, a Clint Eastwood western. You have the Boston Strangler, a very dark movie. You have the Andromeda Strain, you know, a, a science fiction, uh, very futuristic kind of feel to it uh soylent green you know very dour futuristic movie so there's there's a lot of movies in here that i think you know his his experience probably gave him uh, a lot of ability to kind of create the look that he was trying to go for in each scene uh, and again i i think uh i i think that you know that they really did a good job with that um and our director all of a sudden i'm just drawing blanks on this stuff Directed by Jay Lee Thompson, who was also, you know, I, I always saw Jay Lee Thompson as more of a journeyman director, uh, but he certainly, uh, you know, has some big, big name films in his uh, resume as well. Guns of Navarone, Cape Fear, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, 
so I think there was, you know, great care put together. On the other hand, you know, when we talk about the scene when Caesar's face uh, prosthetic starts to come off, clearly they did not have enough of a budget to say, you know what, we're going to do 30 takes of this until we get it right. You know, it's like, we, you know, you, you got to get this right the first time, guys, because we're running out of film. You know, and I and I don't have another two hundred dollars to go over to the, the the local CVS and buy more. Uh, so, you know, I I'm really happy with what they were able to put together. Uh, you know, another aspect of it, and this is one where I kind of, when I paid attention to it, I was a little less enamored with is the score. Uh, Leonard Rosenman, who's done a lot of stuff that I did like, uh, I thought his score on this was a little schmaltzy. And I don't know that it really helped the movie all that much. But I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on that. I I, I will say that the opening uh, title theme, as Aldo is riding into the city, that entire uh, suite, uh, I listen to it all the time. It's like in my playlist of like favorite TV and movie themes. So I, I'm, I, I'm generally like hot and cold about Leonard Rosenman. Uh, I appreciate, I think, the 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 atonal aspect of what he did with Beneath. So I think I'm with you about the majority of the battle score, but that opening uh, opening theme, it's it's a it's a banger in my opinion. I don't disagree with you about the opening, but I think the character moments, uh, which is again the strength of the movie, as far as I'm concerned, I think he got very. Uh, you know, like trying almost like tearjerker mu- music. Yeah. You, you'd expect to hear it in, in the movie Love Story or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. And and uh, I am a defender of Rosenman uh, for uh, Star Trek Four because I, I actually kind of like his score to that and everybody seems to blast it. Oh, no, that's, that's one of my favorites, actually. Uh, just like Zachy just said about, uh, about Battle, uh, Star Trek Four is in my rotation. I listen to it all the time. <laughs> All right, so that makes two of us at least. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so. if I can jump back to one thing that you were mentioning before about budget, because I was think there was set pieces were kind of a biggie on me, because you've got you know where the apes are living and that culture, which is such a big focus in this, and that's a piece where obviously they had a limited budget as far as establishing what that looks like, and and the danger you've got is with their little quest to find out about um, Caesar's family and his past. They've got to go now into this underground where the mutants are that has some tech. And you've, you've got to establish pretty quickly in the story. And this is something I thought that they did was cle- that was clever with some of the limited budget that they had. They established in the story that, you know, hey, you will start living down there, you're going to die. <laughs> I mean, it's a, and I, it's a pretty critical piece to do that because when you're starting to bring his parents up on the screen and you're kind of looking around, you're like, well, they've got some stuff here that may be attractive as far as do we want to overtake this place? Uh-uh. What the, the real danger there is what that means for you. You know, if we keep having our people go down here, lifespans are going to be an issue, things like that. I thought through the story, they did a great job of compensating for any quote unquote budget issues with set pieces um, where it was, it was all story driven where I started believing that like, okay, this is why they're living there and they're going to keep building that up and just making that better as they go along versus going back to some of these things that maybe would make life a little better. Um, But um, 
but there's such a risk to it. Why why would you go that route? Um, except for the fact that for Caesar's case, it was a chance to connect with his parents and to have that moment and kind of get some guidance from his dad and, you know, connect with his mom. I thought the reasoning why he did everything he did made sense, but that was never meant to be a long-term thing. It was meant to be a quick hit and run, get out, because you don't want to stay where the mutants are because of that. Because um, otherwise... I think where my criticism would be, well, I'd want to see more horror of the mutants. Like, why I wouldn't want to be a mutant. Um, but I thought they did a really good job of, through the story using the the counter to let us know, you know, hey, there's radiation here. We're we're going to die if we stay here. I thought they did some clever little things to kind of keep you believing in the world that was in front of you in spite of any per- perceived budget it wasn't really something i guess i was focused on because the story i think compensated for all that for me you know sean you might find this interesting then um originally the movie was going to do something that would have built on what you just said uh which is that in the script and in the adaptation um caesar starts losing all of his hair mm, mm-hmm. he gets bad radiation sickness and it it plays into uh, aldo's hands because aldo is doing this whole he's a human lover thing. Look, he's even starting to look like a human. Um, but I guess I, I guess the idea of doing a sort of a, an American world from London type transformation of his face was just honestly too much for the fifty cent and wad of chewing gum budget. You know, so that 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 got removed. But I think that I think that what you're describing was in the script because of uh, establishing that danger and also because they were going to build on it with with Caesar succumbing to it. And and you're nailing it like as you're describing it I'm like sitting here yes that's I mean that's what I was feeling I started feeling mm-hmm. that possibility being there and I totally get why it's something that originally was going to be a direction for it because yeah. I felt that was the part of the story that I found gripping there and it also it established why like why wouldn't you just like why wouldn't you look and see if there's more here that we could take and make a part of our our village, you know, to enhance our village and, and make it something better? Because it wasn't super impressive, but right. you've it was got far from super impressive. Right. And I mean, that's something you've got to establish pretty quickly because like, OK, guys, why wouldn't you be like pillaging this place and then bringing back some swag? See, um, I think Caesar, while he's a natural born leader. I think he wears the mantle of leadership very, very reluctantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think he wanted to be the leader. I think all he wanted was for his people to have a peaceful existence. So he wouldn't necessarily be saying, let's get this because it's going to move us forward and advance us. All he's thinking, in, in my interpretation, is how are we going to live as peacefully as possible. How are we going to do this? And I think it shows in some of the decisions that he makes during the movie, which aren't necessarily a military leader's uh, thought process, and they aren't necessarily a leader who's looking to the long term. Uh, You know, I think the threat of Aldo stands out right from the start in this movie, and he he doesn't so much sweep it under the carpet. He he's willing to to stand up to Aldo, you know, right from the start, but he's also too forgiving and he lets things go and he lets things fester until Aldo can take it to where he does. Whereas he could have nipped it in the bud. The only thing that I thought, and it allowed for a really cool moment, I thought, uh, but I, I, the only thing I thought 
was kind of against his way of thinking was when they do have their counsel, he's sitting above everybody else. And I don't think that fit his personality. I don't think he was the type who would put himself above everybody else. But it does let us have the moment when Aldo sits in his chair and says, Caesar is not here. And I think that's a great moment. So I'm kind of okay with that setup. I think that they put him there. I think it's not so much that he said, I take this chair the way Aldo did. I, I think the apes so revered him that that's how they built it. That's that's how I that's how I view it. I think you're probably right on that. Yeah. But I also, like I said, I, I don't think he. I think if if there was somebody else who could handle the role of leadership, I think Caesar would have happily handed it over to him. You know, there's there's two things that came to mind while you were just saying that, Paul. And the, the first is about the fact that the, the the fact that he doesn't seem overly military in this. I find it intriguing that this movie is is a sequel to the theatrical version of um, Conquest's ending, not the extended version. So when you watch the two extended versions of the movies back to back, we have to remember that when when this movie came out, fans hadn't seen the extended version of Conquest. So for them, the last time they saw Caesar, he was calling for inexplicably calling for his followers uh, to throw down their guns and, and, and embrace peace, uh, which, as we all know, would realistically have resulted in all of them being shot. So it's a very strange uh, decision on the start on the part of the studio. But that's the Caesar that led into battle. Uh, so when you watch the uh, the extended version of Conquest and then battle, it can be a little jarring. The other thing that I thought about was, I don't know who here has or hasn't read um, Ty Templeton's Revolution on the Planet of the Apes, but it is a bridging story between conquest and battle, and it deals, it it, it smooths out the transition a bit so that uh, conquest flows into battle a little better. And if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's a very good story. You know, there's an interesting thing that you said, Paul, when you were talking about um, Caesar, like kind of gladly handing over the power. I think you're right. Um, and you may disagree with me on this piece, but I, I think what it would be, he is very protective of that culture. He's not concerned with absorbing other cultures. And I think is a very conservative approach to his reluctant leadership in the sense that that piece, that philosophy that is created is important to him. I think he would gladly hand it over to somebody that he trusts to maintain the culture or at least to build strongly off of his culture. The problem is, and maybe it's to a certain extent, he was kind of hoping to be his kid. Um, But, you know, in, I don't know out of his group who he was ready to give that to, like trusting that they would maintain that. Well, I don't think there was anybody in his group who was capable of taking it. Right. You know, if he, if he gave it to, to Virgil, who would, who would be the, I guess, the obvious first candidate, I don't think Virgil has the strength of leadership to maintain that control. And somebody like Aldo would usurp him. Yes. So he, he couldn't allow that to happen. Um, and Demas is too old. Uh, I guess, you know who, who the most capable would have been, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, McDonald. Yes. And I don't think their culture was ready for them to have a human leader in charge of the apes at that point. Oh, they were barely ready to have a human teacher, so definitely not. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of... of 
Austin Stoker taking kind of taking over that mantle. He's not the same character, but he's kind of the same character. <laughs> I thought he was, you know, he he has a similar look and sound about him. So that if you're not paying attention, I think you do think it's the same character. Well, I mean, they did I, mention that it was his brother, so. Yeah. But I do. I know what you mean. They, 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 they. You, you can, you can buy it if you're not paying attention. Sure. Yeah, I, 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 I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, good, Zach. You're good. I, uh, I, I missed Harry Rhodes. I think you know. I that emotional connection would have meant something, especially yeah. in the original, you know, goings when Paul Dane took things in a much darker direction. I don't mind Austin Stoker. I, I. It's it's amusing to me that that uh, you know they brought him in to play um, Jeff in the animated show and and having seen him act in this and and other films from the seventies you can hear how disinterested he was in, in the animated show in his voice. <laughs> you mean when he says things like Bill Judy we have to go see Cornelius. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is kind of proof that you need to be a very special person to be a voice voice actor for animation you've got to be able because voice is so critical to driving yeah. that yeah i, well, I think you see definitely proves that because there are some rather interesting acting choice uh, voice acting choices in the cartoon I, th I think you see it with today's tendency to want to put name actors into the roles uh, on their animated features and it is a very hit and miss prospect because some of them are wonderful in it you know uh, you, Robin Williams in Aladdin I mean how, how you know how wrong could you go there uh, but on the other hand some of them it's just a name and there's they're not bringing any personality to the to the role that they're putting in uh, whereas these professional voice actors you know almost always do and I think you, you know you, you saw the perfect mix of it with the DC animated series uh, that they did where they would you know use uh, you know, true voice actors and famous names, and they really almost always did a great job of picking out which ones to go with and in, in the various things. So there's a little like, bit of an like art the form Mad to Hatter that. And the Penguin, who are those guys who did the voices for them? They're, yeah, they're, 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 good. they're vaguely familiar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I thought was important this time through when I watched it was the scene between Teacher and Cornelius. Where Cornelius, I mean, it wasn't just a kind of a catalyst for Aldo's behavior. I thought when Cornelius walked up and gave him the note, and you got to see him, you know, Ape will not kill Abe. Yeah. You know, he was referencing the fact that he, no, no, I really mean you. Like, teacher, don't you remember your name? You know your name? Yeah. yeah. I, I thought that scene was really pivotal because when you're looking towards, especially in a movie that's so, like, has this, this tone of, hey, can we make additional choices? Can we make different pathways? Huh. You can't help but think about the pathway. What if the kid had lived? And what if he had taken, you know, them in a continued direction? What would it be like? Because in his childhood, he's already referencing, he's personifying teacher in a different way than maybe the rest of them are ready to. He's no longer teacher. He is Abe. And that name's important. And he's already like referencing that kind of taking uh, taking them to a place that his father's not ready for. But he is we're looking with that sense of wonder. And I thought this time around, I was like, wow, that's like really cool that 
there's, you know, I, I think before I was so focused on the Aldo piece of destroying everything afterwards um, because of the whole no sequence and everything that I kind of glossed over that. And this time around, I was like, wow, that's like really kind of neat. Um, I'm more focused on Cornelius and what he could have been this time <laughs> than I ever was before. And it's fun to watch a movie again and kind of follow a different plot thread through and kind of think about the what ifs, which this film's supposed, I mean, it's, it's kind of the cool part of the story is possibilities. So I I, I love that interpretation. I I hadn't really thought about the fact that, that little Cornelius is, is uh, arguably more advanced than the, everyone else in the movie in terms of accepting the equality of the species. I hadn't really thought about that as much until you just said that and you're right had cornelius lived things might have gone very differently uh, it, because you know, we see he has a little little human friend and so forth like they, they 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 the children are the future as the cliche goes and had he lived he he would have been that future and then it i think you know and it's you gotta tread carefully with these subject matters sometimes but caesar as the benevolent leader of the slave owners yeah. Uh, which they, he effectively is. And I think his, you know, the benevolence is certainly something that he's thought out and, and you know, is, is a conscious uh, part of his personality. But I think the aspect of it that he is a slave owner effectively is lost on him until the end when they point it out to him. And as soon as they yeah. do, he's ready to rectify it, which is, you know, perfectly in character with the type of person that he is. But it's an interesting thing to look at, especially nowadays. And again, I got to tread carefully, but when, when we're, we're looking back at history and, and we're saying, well, this famous person in history was once a slave owner, therefore we're going to condemn them. It's hard for me to know what that person was truly like, what their, you know, for all I know, they were benevolent slave owners, for all I know, they were horrible slave owners. And for all I know, they, you know, they treated their slaves as absolute equals. I don't know. But it's certainly something that just when you start thinking about it, it opens up a whole avenue to start thinking, well, what about this? What about that? And, you know, you know, what was what was Caesar's motivation? And how did he treat, you know, they had this, uh, the woman who lived with uh, them, who was uh, kind of, I guess I, I don't even know. She was there in, in the uh, treehouse with Lisa, and, and you know, helping her. You know, was that the maid? Uh, was that an equal? You know, we don't even know. Well, but she, uh, she, according to um, like the dialogue, doesn't make this clear, but she's the doctor. That's right. And she's also um, um, McDonald's uh, mate. Oh, I didn't know. I had yeah, no the idea. dialogue. The dialogue isn't there to, to show that up, but it's uh it's in it's in Marvel and I it's in the script. Yeah, it, it's but, in the novel also. Yeah. In fact, there's a there's a great scene in which uh, that that should that, that, that they kind of allude to it, but it, it's um in, involving um uh, the two of them ha- uh, planning dinner and Caesar being disgusted by it. Oh, but, that'd be yeah. interesting. Yeah, so the, so her yeah her character got edited down. That one I can't necessarily disagree with because I mean if you had to cut something, you know, um, the uh, McDonald's love life was not all that important. But you know it, it's interesting when you talk about the slave aspect, and I, I'd be interested in hearing Zachy's perspective given what he said about um, Harry Rhodes versus Austin Stoker. So you you go from conquest in which 
you have the 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 older McDonald brother talking about um, about slavery and makes the comment, "I a descendant of slaves." And then you have the next movie in which his brother has been enslaved by the very person that he said that to. And uh, it's yeah. an, to me, that's always been a, a really interesting um, uh, matchup. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, he, uh, where the younger McDonald says, now we eat, you know, nuts and berries at our master's command or something to that. Yeah. And what's interesting, by the way, is Caesar himself pushes back. He says, we're not your masters, right? Um yeah, so I think I, he was kind of an ignorant slave owner. He didn't yeah, even realize right, exactly. that he was oppressing I, these people. Well, and exactly. I mean, I, I think McDonald's reply, right? Well, we're not your equals, right? I, I think that's very valid, right? And I, th- and I think that brings us to a really interesting place in the evolution of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, I think that had the character been the older McDonald, you know, I'm curious if that he would have retained that piece of dialogue, you know? Uh, yeah, sorry, but I'm just thinking if he was the older McDonald, he would have had a form. Well, yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> uh, that's good. I, I think that <laughs> I think that it would have resonated more if the same actor that he had been having that conversation with 10 or or 13 or 27 years later is saying, you know, we're, we're not your equals. Um, yeah, I, I think you could have you could have had a real field day in the writing room. Uh, if it had been the same McDonald and if you had, you know, you, you have to think this out more than I'm going to have time to do right now. But you have a conversation where you're saying, remember 30 years ago when right. you know, when you were a slave and look how you've turned it around now. You may you may not be exploiting us the way that we were exploiting you, but we're slaves just the same. Yeah. And that would, you know, you could have some real interesting dialogue and, and going back and forth with them, especially with with Caesar revealing his ignorance of the fact that he had even done this. And see that it's it's that very question that you know is why I chose the topic for my story that I did, because these are the questions that stay with me when I watch battle. Um, I find that that while on some levels it's the most simple, simplistic of the three, on some levels it's also the most com- well, not the most complex, but one of the most complex. There, there are some, there, there are aspects of this movie that are far more profound than people give it credit for, in my opinion. Yeah, that's my take on it too. Is that mm-hmm. I think this movie works on multiple levels. I think if you're an 11 year old child, which is what I was when I first saw this, 10 or 11, something like that. Um, you could just watch it for the for the fact that you got you know apes walking on the screen and talking and there's going to be a fight and you know you can watch it on very surface level and enjoy it and then as you get older and you you know you you, you become somewhat more sophisticated you could start delving into the you know again the social topics and the interaction between the characters and and you know just so many levels that I think this movie does play on which is why I say that they did not skimp at all in the writer's room because they you know that was not budget dependent they yeah. might have had to say well we can't do the scene we want to do because we're not going to be able to afford to do it but as far as uh you know character moments they had no limitations all of the main characters and, and even characters like abe who are on, on not really on the screen that long all of the the, the major characters that stand out all had good beats yeah, Although, unfortunately, don't. some of the best stuff involving Alma and Mendez were cut. And to me, when when that when the when the extended version of Battle came out, I was really blown away by those by those scenes when they were added back in. Well, it just it, like I said, it kind of 
you know, they, they talk about how this movie brings it full circle, but it also brings the mutants full circle by yeah. having those scenes in there, which I think are really, really good. But I think you hit on the right point that it's probably because Beneath was, uh, you know, put forth as being the, the bad sequel. They they decided they didn't, you know, they probably decided that they didn't want to tie it into it that much. Yeah, the, the removal of the bomb scenes to me is inexplicable, but I think that we, that that that's the only explanation for it. It makes sense, at least. Now, I'm curious, and I've I've gone back and forth, but ultimately, I tend to prefer an optimistic ending to things, which is, when you think about it, surprising that I love this series so much because there's so many down moments. Yeah. You know, the, the first movie ends with the Statue of Liberty. The second one ends with them blowing up the world. The third one ends with them killing Cornelius and Zira. And the fourth one ends with the, the overtaking of all humans. Yeah. So, so... <laughs> You know, how how I can say that I look at these things optimistically is almost lost on me. But the end of the movie, the tear, I tend to interpret it as it's a tear of joy because they have corrected the problem that start, that set forth the world that Taylor landed in. Uh, and the humans and the apes are living in, in peace. And there's a tear of joy on Caesar's face because his dream has been realized. That's how I interpret it. Now I know people go <laughs> the polar opposite on that, but let me hear what you guys think. <laughs> um, you know, what I, what I often say about that ending is it depends on what day of the week you ask me. Yeah. And I kind of, that's what I love about it. I, I will say, you know, I, I don't think it's an accident that the lawgiver sequence is set in 2670, which is roughly the same date. The very first date we see on Taylor's chronometer, which is 2673 mm -hmm. in the first film. And I, I love the symmetry, the idea that while the lawgiver is doing his thing, Chuck Heston is up in space doing his thing. And so if you view it that way, you know, if, if you buy into the circle, the circular timeline, you're like, well, we know where this is headed, but I, you know, I think they they did it that way on purpose. Again, just going back to what I was saying earlier, Paul Dane w was much harder and darker in his original uh, conception of the story, and I think Arthur Jacobs was very smart about saying, you know, this is the last one. Let's not <laughs> like make people want to walk into traffic. Uh, and I love that. I love that here we are. You know, whatever it is, fifty years later. And we're asking, hey, what is it? What does Caesar crying mean? Isn't that great? Absolutely. <laughs> so, what do you think it means? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've felt the same thing twice. You know, watching the film because I, I think it is an interesting film. Like we're gonna like this time around. I got to be honest, I wasn't like so much focused on what I thought it overall meant. As I was, there was a part of me that was thinking to myself, is the kind of the tear about the fact that maybe he wished his kid was a part of what was in front of him. You know, like you got to see like the humans and the apes getting together. And, you know, there was there was definitely felt like a lot more equality to what was going on there with um, the lawgiver and everything. And I, I started thinking to myself, like, was he kind of wishing that his kid was a part of this because of, you know, what what he could have maybe done with it? Um, and I wasn't thinking that that would be all that would be in his head, you know, because that seems kind of, you know, small for Caesar. But I, I kept wondering, is there a part of him that would be thinking of Cornelius? And I loved that I was so 
invested in Caesar at the end of it, which was a, kind of a, a different sort of thing. I think it's fun that you can kind of interpret it. And I, I, I got to admit, I've never thought of it the same way twice. Sometimes I thought dark. Um, this time around, it was a little bit more hopeful where I just was more focused on kind of his kid and, and possibilities than I was uh, more on uh, the possibility of it leading to what we've already seen in the past. Um, so that's that's kind of where it was at this time. You know, I was thinking about what uh, what Zachy said about the fact that the, the, the year of the bookends uh, it's not coincidental since it does it does jibe with the first date we see, but it also almost jibes with a second thing from the first movie, which is the writing of the sacred scrolls. There's a only it's only a hundred years off of when the sacred scrolls would have been written because uh, the apes believe that 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 um twelve hundred years ago their civilization began, uh, and this is thirteen hundred years ago. So I find it interesting that that this is. Um, it's all around the same period of time, and and it so it's a it is truly a pivotal moment in the planet's history. What's in, you may remember this from the first time that I that I appeared uh, in the show discussing Planet of the Apes with you is that you asked me which is my favorite Planet of the Apes movie, and my answer was similar to what Zaki said about whether or not the statue is happy or sad, and it was it depends on what movie I'm watching at any given time. My favorite. <laughs> Apes movie is the one I'm watching. Uh, can I? What I ever it's directed by Tim Burton. Right. I mean, of the <laughs> classics, yeah. Like, would I ever truthfully say Battle's my favorite? No, of course not. But um, I, I just I enjoy them. So the movie that I'm enjoying the most is the one I happen to be watching. I have a similar reaction to the statue's tear. Sometimes, depending on, uh, I guess maybe it's depending on my mood, depending on whether I'm optimistic that day. Sometimes it's because the uh, future is better. The, 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 there's Here's a school um, hundreds of years after battle where humans and – I almost said humans and aliens. I'm Suddenly I'm watching Babylon 5, uh, where, where, where humans and, and apes are being schooled next to each other. On the other hand, they're pulling each other's pigtails and fighting over stupid shit. So maybe – Maybe it's it's a it's a tear of of, of, uh, of of pain. But I think that that plays into the bigger question, which is whether these movies are a circular uh, timeline or uh, a non changing time, a changing timeline. And the movies are not consistent on this. I mean, the, the, the Paul Dean wrote all the all of the sequels. And yet the history that we're told in Escape doesn't match what happens uh, in conquest and battle. And so it does seem to be a changed timeline, even before we get to the statue. The fact Which that goes to Virgil's talk about changing lanes. Exactly. And I think that I think that the clues are there that it was always meant to be changing, uh, changing lanes, except that I've seen interviews of Paul Den where he said he was going for circular. So <laughs> they're really, in, they're really inconsistent on this point. And I, in the end, I think that both interpretations are valid, which is a cop-out answer. But I think that it has to be that answer for the simple fact that the movie wants to have its, uh, it's, it, it's, it's cake and eat it too. It's banana cake and eat it too. <laughs> See, I, I, I kind of interpreted it of late this wasn't my thought you know years ago but i kind of interpreted it of late that the moment when they let the humans out of the stockade and caesar realizes 
that he hasn't been treating them as equal, that he has been treating them as lesser, that that realization is the changing lanes. That, that, that when that moment happens, that's what cements the future to be different from what it was in Planet and Beneath. Well, if so, then that, that would explain one other thing. This is not the Aldo that's mentioned in Escape. It can't be because that was hundreds of years after the humans had enslaved the apes. So arguably the, 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 the change happens the moment we meet Aldo. <laughs> and well, or the, or the yeah. change happens the moment that Cornelius and Zero land in and, modern day. And I'll tell you, yeah. I've always had this pet yeah. theory that the plague from space came from them. Yeah, you've, you've, you've said that before, and I, I think that makes total sense. Yeah. It makes, so, I, I'm, uh, uh, sorry, Rich, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, so for me, I agree with, with Paul that the, the, chain, the time changes the moment that, that, that Sir and Cornelius come back and bring a plague uh, that changes the cause of everything. Is there anything in the lore that ever touches on that? And I, I'm admitting my own ignorance on that piece, but um, I'm I'm fascinated about additional lore on Planet of the Apes. Just I've become, I've become more, and more. Rich is your man, then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want to cut off Zachy though, because I know that he he was going to. But, but sure. the, pretty, the short answer to what you're asking is that there's no definitive answer, but lots of clues. The comics have not entirely consistent answers to this. Um, and so forth. Um, and there's a there's a chronology that was published by Marvel in their magazine that touches on some of it, but like there's no definitive answer yet on on what the, on on, on uh, you know. And then if you get to the novels, conspiracy and death, you know, it, it, there, there's a perspective there. But it's it, it's I, I think it's still open to interpretation. Zachy, were you going to say something? Oh, yeah, no, I I, I was just going to say that I, I've always felt that, yeah, when Zira and Cornelius come back, they, they're they just kickstarting something that wasn't supposed to happen for another yeah. 500 years or so. Um, and, you know, and it, it just, that's sort of the irony is is Dr. Hasline being such an asshole. He just kind of, <laughs> he just made it all happen sooner. Yeah. Well, you know what Dr. Hasline does, though? His theory of time travel makes... Uh, Paul Williams' theory seemed good. Because <laughs> the man painting a picture thing has been a, a joke for me for many, many years. <laughs> man painting a picture of a man painting a picture of a man painting a picture. Yeah, yeah. But what is still missing? <laughs> it's I, I, I just never understood that, and I never will. I, 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 I want to think that the people who wrote that are so far beyond me in intelligence that it makes total sense and I'm just not able to 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 you know to to understand it but 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 I'm thinking probably not anyway I like, I like that the debate is whether or not if they're really intelligent or but somebody in the room is punking you going like, like yeah, exactly this is just enough that people are going to think we meant something by it I, I, I always get the feeling that that somebody wrote that particular explanation of time travel while heavily under the influence of some sort of substance that they were smoking. Uh, and, and it made total sense with that enhancement. Well, given what that movie was made, probably half the people on the set were under uh, some sort of pharmacological enhancement. <laughs> Very possibly. So uh, before we get to the to rating this, uh, anything, any other thoughts? Uh 
I've always enjoyed the fact that for the, what this movie sets out to do, if it, whether or not Paul Dane knew it was the end, I'm not, I'm not sure. But uh, what it sets out to do is is come full circle, even if whether it, whether you think it's changing or um, or, or circular, it, it sets this, it sets up um, the future of, of, of the apes and give, it leaves with the question of what, uh, that, that, that things may go really bad. It introduces the Mendez dynasty and the bomb worship and so forth. But one thing it also does is it, it we start the very we, we start the first movie with a discussion of Hasselheim's time theories and we end with a movie in which Virgil is parroting or monkeying uh, those those similar the same theories. So Virgil is good Dr. Hasslein. And I, I find that interesting. I mean, one could argue that there's no bad Dr. Hasslein because he's not technically a villain. He's trying to actually save the future. Um, and this is one of the nuances of these films that I find fascinating. You take the murderous part out of Hasslein and you've got Virgil. It's a great little capper at the end that the apes truly do inherit the earth from us. And that includes Dr. Hasslein. <laughs> <laughs> I never, I never thought of it that way, but that's interesting. And, and more, just more food for thought. Yeah. So I'm going to throw out that. I love this movie. I love all the Planet of the Apes movies that weren't directed by Tim Burton. Um, I can't in good faith say this is Jaws uh, by any stretch of the imagination. The budgetary limitations in and of themselves uh, prevent that. Um, I think the critics, the the people who are hypercritical of it are going to say it's Jaws 3 or Jaws 4. But for me, it's got the rewatchable factor. I think the acting is really good. I think the story is very, very thought-provoking if you want to give it the thought. So for me, this is a Jaws 2, and I say that very comfortably. Yeah, that was where I landed, too. Yep. Same. It's a solid Jaws 2. I was so prepared that this was going to be a Jaws 3 for me, Uh, not because I was, like, forcing myself there. I think that's been my experience with this film where, and I, when I say Jaws 3, hi Jaws 3, because it's, I rewatch it when I've watched the series, but it's been kind of like the completionist of the story in me as instead of like wanting to like really rewatch this one again, this time was very different for me. It was a real surprise. Uh, the, I, I clicked with certain story beats in ways that I hadn't before that has made me want to rewatch it again. And I think what benefited this one for me that makes it a Jaws 2 was the fact that I watched it apart from the others, you know, and I didn't get caught up on maybe some of the pieces where, okay, it's not not as much budget or, you know, the other pieces that I think maybe have been labeled on this film and just watched it as a movie. Now, I for anybody listening to this, I don't if you haven't watched the other movies, I don't recommend going to this one. I would watch the other movies because you need the value of it. But I did do think the separation of not having watched them in a while and just watching this for the story it was telling really benefited for me on this one. And and so I, I'm comfortably giving it a Jaws 2 because I already want to watch it again. I, I want to I like I want to see how I feel about other story beats and and truly see how what I feel about that tear at the end, like through the next time. Um, cause it, it was been fun. So this, this has been an interesting journey on this one for me. Cause I was in a very different place at the start of it. 
Interesting. Very interesting perspective. I want to thank you guys for all coming on uh, and, and doing all of these movies because it's been a long journey. Uh, and we may may not be done. We may we may have a couple of more to things to squeeze in before we wrap up Planet of the Apes. And uh, any word before we sign off this on uh, the next uh, chapter and when it's expected? Figured, Zach, yeah, I thought you might have a little insight into that. Um, as far as... Uh, if there's like a, a target date for when that's going to be common? Oh, is there, oh 2024. Oh, so only, yeah, only a they, year away. Mm-hmm. They finished filming, and, and I was actually, like, they as you're asking the question, I was, I was thinking about um, what Sean was saying about, you know, what if Cornelius had lived and and we'll get to see the answer to that in the next film because in in this version of the apes uh, series cornelius does live so yeah. well what, what does he do with his father's teachings you know i i guess i've got to say i'm still a little bummed over caesar dying at the end of war <laughs> yeah you know it? it was so well earned though you know that that yeah. scene worked for me so well it, it did wonderful. It did, but it, keep in mind know. too that Roddy McDowell played three different uh, apes, right? So we're not done uh, with Andy Serkis. We're just gonna have him playing someone new. Oh, and and can I can I actually just add one thing with relation to to what we're talking about the new films? Uh, and I think it's relevant given what we were talking about with Battle. Uh, I remember when Rise before Rise came out, I had an opportunity to read the script about a year before it came out, and it had a much darker ending. And when I when I interviewed uh, Rick Joppa and Amanda Silver about that, I asked them, I said, you know, I remember reading the script. It was a lot darker and then it ended in a different place. And they said. As we were writing the script, as we kept going, we realized we loved Caesar and we didn't want to see him go down like a Michael Corleone path, you know, and and I, I think about that choice as it relates to how that trilogy ends, because, yeah, we feel it when he dies at the end of the third one, because he is a character who retained his, his, uh, you know, moral compass and whatnot. And, and I think in much a similar way, I think Arthur Jacobs had that thought with battle with where Paul Dane uh, wanted to take the original version. I think he had, he had the same inclination. No, I love Caesar. I don't want him to, to go dark, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and I think the films are better for that choice. I would say, you know, I mean, we never got to see the other and realized, so we don't know how that would have played out, but I certainly am happy with the ending we got. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. But, again, I want to thank you guys for coming on, and uh, I look forward to our next chance to, to talk. And uh, we have we have had some preliminary talks about the next thing we're going to talk about, and it's very non-apes related. So I'm going to leave that as a teaser. It's Time of the Apes, right? we we, we will see Uh, but thanks again guys for coming on and uh, thank you everybody for listening and we'll catch you next time thank you this was good thank you thank you Aldo has killed an ape child the branch did not break it was cut with a sword Mm-hmm.